This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. Fresh off his appearance as the star of episode 7 of Prairie Prophets TV, Sean McMahon, the executive director of the Iowa Agriculture Water Alliance, sits down with us on the podcast today to dig a little bit deeper into keeping nutrients out of our water and all that comes with making sure our water stays clean for all. Sean, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, Brandon. It's great to be back with you. But uh, just to be clear, it's really the project that's the star. I'm just one of the many fortunate partners happy to be involved. With. I don't know. I was kind of waiting to hear that you'd moved on to Hollywood and there was like <laughs> a, a new like movie star, Sean McMahon, rolling out. But You know, the rumor uh, got out there. And, and so, uh, you know, a number of the guilds, uh, decided to strike in protest of my potential coming. Well, I've been thinking with Prairie <laughs> Profits, you know, turning out to be a, a pretty impressive production that with this strike going on in Hollywood, maybe we could be like the replacements. Well, we'll be filling that void, that that huge uh, sucking sound you hear is all the, all the listeners uh, tuning in that can uh, that can't binge watch their their favorite series. Now now they've got Prairie Profits, thankfully, so they've upgraded. Absolutely. Well, we're back in Washington, D.C. This is becoming a mainstay for you and I. Uh, Why are we here? What is the goal of this trip in Washington? Yeah, so the Horizon 2 Partnership Project, as you know, is all about scaling up prairie strips and cover crops and mixing that plant substrate with the manure and the methane digesters. So this $80 million grant through the Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities, is going to pay farmers for more of that. However, you know, there are some, uh, you might say, uh, policy challenges or obstacles that Raceline Alternative Energy and some of the other partners in this Horizon 2 partnership are informing and educating members of Congress about. So perhaps uh, there might be some changes in, uh, in legislation or implementation. Can you talk about any that we might like to see? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, the Conservation Reserve Program, or CRP, has been uh, one of the uh, most effective conservation programs in the nation, and it's conserved millions of acres. It has uh, its statutory purposes are to reduce soil erosion, um, improve uh, wildlife habitat, and improve water quality. And it's been very effective at, at doing that. Since the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, when uh, Prairie Strips was first mentioned in that legislation, Farm Services Agency, or FSA, uh, wound up uh, creating a program within CRP for Prairie Strips. It's a continuous CRP practice known as CP43. And so that's fantastic. Um, however, the Horizon 2 partnership project uh, partners would like to see a little more flexibility around the harvesting of CRP for renewable energy purposes. And uh, when landowners uh, use uh, managed hang and grazing for CRP, uh, they can you know, take what, what's typically a third of the CRP and uh, hay it and graze it each year. And so under that scenario, you're leaving two-thirds of the habitat in place each year. But those landowners have to pay a a penalty for doing that, and it's 25% of the contract. 
the the partners for Horizon Two believe that you know with this helping America's energy independence with uh, you know harvesting of biomass from CRP going to create clean renewable natural gas and also creating jobs and economic development opportunities for rural America. Maybe landowners shouldn't have to pay that penalty, or perhaps the penalty should be less. You know, especially when you think about the states of Iowa and Missouri, where the Horizon Two project is. These native grasses and and sedges and and forbs or flowers, they co-evolved with disturbance. You know, with grazing from large ungulates. You know, of course, everyone thinks of bison and elk on the prairie, but you know, if you go back. Uh, you know, a few thousand years before, you know, there were other things grazing too, like uh, horses and camels and, you know, giant sloths and, and things like that. So all of these prairie plants co-evolved with that disturbance. And in addition to the grazing, you had wildfires, which are now suppressed. And, and uh, we've kind of lost that fire culture, you know, a number of organizations like the Nature Conservancy are trying to do more prescribed burns. But if you don't have that disturbance to the native vegetation, it's less useful. Um, You know, there's a term that ecologists or botanists use, it becomes decadent. So it's yet less useful for wildlife habitat. But if you have a, a disturbance on just some of the acres, you can really get great wildlife outcomes. So we'd like to, uh, to encourage, um, uh, folks to consider whether or not some changes should be be made to the penalty. That's just one example. Let's talk about the Iowa Agriculture Water Alliance. What exactly is this organization you run? Yeah, so we were founded uh, just over nine years ago by three of Iowa's leading ag associations, the Iowa Soybean Association, Iowa Corn, and Iowa Pork. And our mission is to increase the pace and scale of farmer-led efforts to improve water quality. And we're very much organized around implementing something called the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy, which has really ambitious goals to reduce our nitrogen and phosphorus loss by 45%. So at IAWA, we create a number of public-private partnerships that bring together dozens of partners, often around large federal grants, And we uh, try to get uh, these partners to um, be aligned and really pull on the same rope in the same direction at the same time and move the needle to scale up conservation practices. So we have a number of really successful projects. One of them is the Midwest Agriculture Water Quality Partnership. And that's a $100 million project that's already improved conservation on over 4 million acres. So that's a good example of the types of things we do on the ground. You've had a very interesting career yourself. Look at your resume. You've got Audubon, National Wildlife Federation, the Nature Conservancy. I would think traditionally most of those are conservation or environmental-based organizations. Now you're leading an agricultural organization. Can you talk about that bridge between conservation and agriculture? Absolutely. Yeah. So I've been a lifelong conservationist, Brandon, ever since I was a little kid. I've known I've wanted to work on on environmental issues. You know, I grew up in a beautiful area 
in New Hampshire, uh, right on a lake. And I just moved to that town from the neighboring town when I was six years old. And our family just loved recreating on, on the lake. But after we were there a short time, uh, there were all these uh, fish kills and algae blooms. And it, it turns out that the town that we had moved from was actually responsible for, for the fish kills from some untreated sewage going into what was the headwaters of, of the lake. But I was able to, uh, to witness the power of Mother Nature to, hear, to heal herself uh, through environmental restoration. And within a few years after the, that uh, source of the, uh, the nutrients stopped, uh, the water quality improved tremendously, went back to a, a Class A lake, the fish came back, and then you had uh, bird species like loons and bald eagles coming to the lake that hadn't been seen in years. And so for me, that was just amazing, you know, seeing that transformation for the positive and seeing what's possible. Fast forward, you know, to my career as an adult, you know, I'm working at the Interior Department and doing a lot of uh, public lands, natural resource policy. But I'm getting to work a little bit with USDA now and then, particularly the Forest Service and a little bit with NRCS. But then when I first started at the National Audubon Society, I got to work on the Farm Bill. And so that was really my first chance of uh, influencing policy that impacts farmers and helps to incentivize them to enhance and improve wildlife habitat. And when I realized the scale of the Farm Bill, you know, which impacts uh, farmers and landowners in every single state and the amount, the amount of money going into it, I quickly realized, hey, this is the best opportunity in the world to influence conservation on private lands. And I had spent the last uh, eight years or so working on public lands, which I absolutely love, you know, for all the recreation benefits like, like you do. But I realized, hey, the public lands, they're already protected for the most part. Yeah, you could be doing uh, different designations that increase certain protections, restrict uh, certain activities like maybe uh, mining, oil and gas development, etc. But the private lands, that's where the best opportunity is to make an impact that can benefit uh, wildlife. So I started working for other conservation organizations on the farm bill. But in Iowa, I had the chance to uh, work for the Nature Conservancy as the state director of the Iowa chapter. And that's when I really first started working directly with individual farmers and and with cattlemen on improving habitat, uh, doing uh, permanent easements to permanently protect habitat. And uh, ever since, I've just gotten more and more involved in, in agriculture, and it was a thrill for me getting to, uh, to launch the Iowa Agriculture Water Alliance. I had a few years earlier launched the agriculture program for the Nature Conservancy and led that in North America, and I loved that job, but I was frankly traveling so much. It was a strain on the family. Uh, my wife and I just had our fourth child when I was recruited to, uh, to start IWA and the chance to focus on one issue in one state and work even more closely with farmers was just uh, too appealing to turn down. So I've uh, been really thrilled and blessed to be doing this job now for a little over nine years. Clearly, farmers like clean water. 
Absolutely. You know, we talk about farmers all the time as being dedicated to the land and dedicated to the resources like no other. Where I think farmers get frustrated is in a lot of the red tape that comes with water regulation. I remember working on the Waters of the U.S. rule under the Obama administration, watching that pendulum swing drastically under the Trump administration, and now it's swinging again under the Biden administration. If we take all of that out of the picture and just break it down to what is it farmers want when it comes to clean water regulation? Can you address that? What is it? Like, what are the frustrations? What are the ultimate goals? Yeah, so it's really interesting. When Congress passed the Clean Water Act in 1972, they created this bifurcated approach where, you know, on the one hand, you have the regulated community, whether that's uh, like big cities, wastewater treatment facilities and utilities or manufacturing um, but then for, uh, for non-point runoff, uh, largely agricultural runoff, Congress decided to exempt that from the Clean Water Act. So farmers have been uh, working in, in what we call a voluntary conservation environment as opposed to a regulatory environment. And, and that's how they like it for the most part. But I would say... Uh, Farmers, just like everyone, are dependent on, on clean water. And so we need to make sure that our, our drinking water um, has uh, uh, less nitrogen, you know, below 10 parts per million in order to meet that standard. And so, of course, uh, you know, a lot of farmers drink uh, from rural wells. And so it's very, very important to them and their families to have water quality. It's not just a, a big city issue. But I think there, there can be a lot of red tape, as you alluded to, around some of the voluntary conservation practices. So I know that's something that our partners at Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship are working really closely on. How can they make the experience more positive for farmers through the state? Cost share programs eliminate some of that red tape, uh, make the applications much easier. Um, over the the decades since the conservation title was first created in the Farm Bill in 1985, yeah, red tape has grown around some important Farm Bill programs, uh, CRP and EQIP, and more recently, the Regional Conservation Partnership Program. I know NRCS, um, under the current administration, they've been holding listening sessions about uh, where they're being informed how they can do better. And I know there's a, a genuine attempt to do that and to make some of these programs easier for partners and easier for farmers, but there's a long way to go. And it still takes uh, too long to do an application. Farmers often aren't hearing back for uh, many months, uh, whether or not they're, they're getting funded. One example of uh, how NRCS has been attempting to change that in the last couple of years is the Act Now program, where instead of waiting like seven, eight, nine months or more to find out if your practice is going to be funded, under this program, if a farmer wants to sign up for something like cover crops or prairie strips, they will know within 30 days whether or not their application is getting funded. 
So that's a huge improvement. And I hope that uh, we, we continue to see more programs that, that are doing that 30-day act now option, uh, more practices within the EQIP doing that, and hopefully more funding for that, because that is very popular among farmers. We talked earlier about bridging the gap between conservation and agriculture. I really feel like conservation is the bridge between agriculture and environmentalism. We have groups in this country who do want to see modern agriculture go away. These extreme groups on, on the far end of environmentalism. I feel like they or certain people involved in some of those groups have this vision in their head of like Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation as the farmer who wakes up with the desire to just like wake up and dump their sewage in a river. And clearly that's not the case. That's not what's going on out here in the heartland. Also, some farmers probably think there are people who want to test their drinking water before they have a sip of coffee in the morning. And that's not the case either. It's settling somewhere in the middle with reasonable and responsible regulations that, that make this country and make this planet livable and better for all. That being said, there are some issues with water quality that do result from farms, and we explored that in episodes four and five of Prairie Profits TV when we looked at the connectivity of the watershed and went all the way to the Gulf of Mexico where there is a hypoxic dead zone. We are trying to alleviate a lot of that nutrient runoff into our waters through Horizon 2, and I know a lot of what you do on a day-to-day basis is, is geared just towards that. Like, how do we keep nutrients out of our water? And you work really hard on the Iowa Nutrient Recovery Act. Can you talk about that? Can you talk about the reality of nitrogen and phosphorus going into our waterways and what we're trying to do to alleviate that? Sure. Yeah. So the majority of nutrients going into the Gulf of Mexico causing the hypoxic zone are from agricultural runoff, and that that is a known fact. Um, And Iowa, Illinois, uh, those are the top two states as far as the nitrogen and phosphorus contributors to the Gulf of Mexico. But there's actually 12 states that are aligned in reducing our nitrogen and phosphorus losses, and we have the same goal of 45% reduction. So it's All 10 states along the main stem of the Mississippi River, plus Indiana and Ohio, two high nutrient contributing states from the Ohio River Basin. So we all have these these shared goals. Now with farmers, you know, every farmer you meet wants to ensure that more of his fertilizer is taken up by the crops and less of it is lost to runoff. You know, whether it's expensive synthetic nitrogen or potassium or phosphorus or, you know, whether it's manure, which is a very valuable resource. Farmers do not want to see nutrient loss. And there's an inherent economic driver for them to want to improve their their nutrient use efficiency. Then there's some other practices that are really good at cutting back at the nutrients, but they also improve soil health and ultimately yields, and they can, can uh, lead to uh, reduced input costs. And I'm talking about practices like no-till and strip-till and cover crops. 
Then you've got still other practices that are really effective at reducing nitrate, where we have tiling or subsurface agricultural drainage. Practices like bioreactors, saturated buffers, and wetlands, they can actually intercept the tile lines and allow for denitrification to to occur. So through that Iowa nutrient reduction strategy you were asking about, we're looking to scale up all those various practices. And we've made phenomenal progress in the last decade, but we still have a ways to go, particularly with the edge of field practices. But take cover crops. You know, there was an estimated 10,000 acres of cost-shared cover crops in Iowa in 2010. Now we have about 3 million acres of cover crops. And in fact, according to USDA, Iowa has the uh, fastest rate of, uh, of adoption, of increase in adoption of cover crops in the nation. So that's, you know, more than an exponential increase. But are we satisfied with that? No. Because at 3 million acres, that represents, you know, maybe 12 or 13% of all the row crop acres in Iowa. But we have a goal to get 50 to 70% of all the row crop acres in, in cover crops. So we're looking to get between 12 and 17 million acres of cover crops just in Iowa. And that's why projects like Horizon 2 are so important, because that can send a market signal to landowners hey, we could get paid for growing cover crops or taking some of the acres within our field that are often sub-profitable. Maybe there's a soil health reason for that, or maybe they're uh, prone to flooding the the bottomland acres, and we could put those into prairie strips and not only get paid through a federal or state cost share program, but we can get a market payment for this biomass that's going to wind up in a digester and produce clean, renewable, natural gas. So uh, part of the vision of the founder of your company, as you know well, uh, Rudy Raceline, is to see 30 million acres of reconstructed prairie and another 100 million acres of cover crops all throughout the Mississippi River Basin that can help to enable this Horizon 2 type of methane digester that's mixing the plant substrate with the manure. So that's going to have absolutely transformational impacts on water quality by having those cover crops and also the, the prairie strips and those nat- native grasses, having the, the living roots in our soil in the spring when we get most of our rain and we're most vulnerable to soil erosion and also nitrate leaching prior to the corn and soybean crops becoming established and taking up a lot of those nutrients themselves. Uh, That's really our most vulnerable time for nutrient loss. But the second most vulnerable time is in the fall after harvest when we have bare ground again. But if we have cover crops, uh, particularly uh, crops like rye that that can overwinter, they can scavenge nitrogen, that's huge for not only water quality, but also in improving soil health. And there's a lot of benefits to the farmers too. You know, you can uh, address compaction, you can improve your porosity or your infiltration rate, you, you're improving your soil organic matter. So the, the fields are able to hold water longer and, uh, you know, the farms become more resilient then to, uh, to drought, to seasonal climatic variability.
And, you know, in the case of cover crops, that can also uh, lower input costs, like on crop protection products like herbicides, because there's such a dense mat that gets laid down. It actually prevents weeds from getting in there with the, the corn and soybeans. So farmers are increasingly realizing the value proposition for cover crops, and a number of them would do it even without any cost share. But I'm so excited for Horizon 2 because now we'll have uh, private sector market payments for cover crops as basically a, a commodity. Likewise for, uh, for prairie strips and, and prairie grasses. So it's a very exciting time. Sean, thanks for everything you've done to help get us to this point. And I look forward to working with you over the next five years to see Horizon 2 fully realized. It's been a pleasure, Brandon. Yeah, thank you for your partnership. Thanks for listening to the Prairie Profits Podcast with host Brandon Butler.